0: Hi, this is Lily Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Today we're talking about Section 135, kind of overcome by this section, which I have loved ever since first reading it, this great tribute to Joseph Smith and to Hiram, his brother, who were murdered in Carthage, Illinois. On June 27th of 1844, Joseph Smith was only 38 years old. I'm blown away by what this man accomplished In these years, from the time he was 14 to 38, you think what a brief period of time that is, 24 years. What he did, which is acknowledged here in this section, written by John Taylor, is astonishing and and moving to anyone with an open heart and mind. Beginning at verse 1, To seal the testimony of this book and the Book of Mormon, We announce the martyrdom of Joseph Smith, the prophet, and Hiram Smith, the patriarch. They were shot in Carthage jail on the 27th of June, 1844, about 5 o'clock p.m. by an armed mob. And then more details are given. I'm skipping to verse 3. Joseph Smith, the prophet and seer of the Lord, has done more, save Jesus only, for the salvation of men in this world than any other man that ever lived in it. That is an astonishing statement. And I believe it. Christ did everything for us under the direction of God the Father. He made the plan work by offering himself the sinless sacrifice on behalf of each one of us. And Joseph Smith stands next to Jesus Christ in doing the works that brought about the salvation of men. Again, you know, in such a brief life when we think about the dispensation of the fullest of times and the building of temples that has ensued, when we think about bringing forth of the Book of Mormon, this second witness of Christ, and the Doctrine and Covenants, which is another witness to Christ, and a great, a great revelatory piece on how we can be instructed of the Lord and receive direction and guidance in our own lives, and how line upon line, precept upon precept. God restored the fullness of the gospel. Again, as we've said, in every other dispensation, Satan won. Satan was able to extinguish the light through apostasy, through the destruction of the prophets and of of those who held the sealing powers. But Joseph Smith brought forth a dispensation in which that was never going to happen, in which with, you know, come all the problems that we have in and out of the church, there will be a group of people who will be prepared to build Zion, I hope we're preparing right now to build Zion to receive the Lord. And Joseph Smith is the one who brought this potential to the earth again through his own commitment to the truth. No matter what was done to him, he would not falter. It's an extraordinary tribute that John Taylor is giving here. And and it makes perfect sense when we, when we review all that we've learned this year about what Joseph Smith has done. And I hope we keep learning about what Joseph Smith has done. In fact, in preparation for this section, I've spent a few weeks now reading and rereading a lot of content about Joseph Smith. And what a joy it has been. I'm going to share a lot of that in some extra content, because there are some great stories that haven't been told this year, at least in this podcast, and I want to share them. So look forward to that. It's coming very soon now. This is this is an extraordinary summary that John Taylor gives in, in verse 3. In this short space of 20 years, he has brought forth the Book of Mormon, which he translated by the gift and power of God, and has been the means of publishing it on two continents, has sent the fullness of the everlasting gospel, which it contained to the four quarters of the earth, has brought forth the revelations and commandments, which compose this book of Doctrine and Covenants, and many other wise documents and instructions for the benefit of the children of men, gathered many thousands of the Latter-day Saints, founded a great city and left a fame and name that cannot be slain. Beautiful language here. He lived great and he died great in the eyes of God and his people, and like most of the Lord's anointed in ancient times, has sealed his mission and his works with his own blood. And so has his brother Hiram. In life, I love this sentence, in life they were not divided, and in death they were not separated. John Taylor was a writer and had some really great response to his written word. He had great gifts, and they're on display here in this incredible tribute to Joseph Smith. Of course, John Taylor was with Joseph and Hiram and Willard Richards in Carthage, and we'll give some more details about that in a moment. But I love those words. He lived great and he died great in the eyes of God and his people. Now, notice that in this summary, John Taylor is talking about you know, just part of what has happened at this time. Now you want to add all that has happened since 1844, in the development of the kingdom of God on earth, in the building of temples, in the missionary program, in the genealogy work, I have have a story from a, I'm just going to throw this in because it's fun. I have a friend that lives still in Las Vegas, and I knew her when we were there, wonderful woman. And she told me that once, and this was many years ago, that her family decided to go to England, where the genealogical roots were, and they carried like some extra suitcases with all these you know family history sheets and things that they could fill out as they went they decided to do this trip of family history and fill out these forms so that they could get information for their family. It was a really great idea that part of the family decided let's go together on this trip and and get some of this information done. so they start going to some of the parishes and and churches in England in the area that the family came from. And as they talked to some of the rectors or the ministers that were in those churches, they said, you know, you can copy these if you want. But really, they've all been microfilmed by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's in Salt Lake City. If you just go there, you can get all of it. <laughs> that, was, that was several years ago. But it's, it's too, can you imagine? She said we were too embarrassed to tell them that we were members of the church. Because, because we, should have, we should have thought of that. That the church has done this amazing work on both sides of the veil. And Joseph Smith, the prophet of the restoration, is the one who brought this forth. Salvation for the living and for the dead. I mean, it is is—it is completely understandable that, that you can make that statement, that he has done more, save Christ only, for the salvation of men on both sides of the veil. Going on, verse 4, when Joseph went to Carthage to deliver himself up to the pretended requirements of the law, Two or three days previous to assassination, he said, I am going like a lamb to the slaughter, but I am calm as a summer's morning. Again, beautiful words coming. I have a conscience void of offense towards God and towards all men. Should that not be our goal? To have a conscience void of offense towards God and all men. What an incredible place to have come to in your life. In the prophet's life. And I hope that we are trying to come to that in our life. To be void of offense towards God and, or towards our fellow men. I shall die innocent. And these words are capitalized, of course. And it shall yet be said of me, he was murdered in cold blood. Incredible beauty to these words. They They resonate. They resonate with the virtue of the prophet Joseph's character. I'm not going to read more of this, I hope you enjoy all the incredible words that are given in tribute to the prophet Joseph Smith and to his brother Hiram. They're beautiful, they're beautiful and they're meaningful to all of those of us who have belief in his prophetic position, his mission, and the character and integrity with which he fulfilled all that was required of him. I want to talk a little bit more about the setting and and what happened on that day. And much of this, uh, you know, but, you know, let's kind of review in our tribute to Joseph Smith today and to what happened in Carthage, Illinois, at the time of the martyrdom of Joseph and Hiram. You know, just prior to all of this, Joseph Smith had delivered the King Follett Sermon. He was friends with a man named King Follett, who had died in an accident in a well. He was in a well, and, a, and a sort of a bunch of stuff fell on him, and he died of his injuries. And Joseph Smith was asked to speak at his funeral, and he gave a famous message called the King Follett Sermon. It was a long message and very prophetic. He talked about pure doctrine, about the character of God, and how God came to be God. This was This was really groundbreaking revelation that told us that God once was as we are, you know, as, as man now is, God once was, came out of the King Follett sermon. Later on, it was finished by Wilfred Woodruff, who finished that little couplet and said, as God now is, man may become. So that that thought was completed later, but it was begun here in April 7th, On April 7th of 1844. So that's just a couple of months before the martyrdom. And at that time, Joseph Smith made some statements about how, well, let me quote it directly. Joseph Smith said at this sermon, No man knows my history. I cannot tell it. I shall never undertake it. If I had not experienced what I have, I should not have known it myself. I never did harm any man since I've been born in the world. My voice is always for peace. I cannot lie down until all my work is finished. I never think any evil nor anything to the harm of my fellow man. When I am called at the trump of the archangel and wait in the balance, you will know me then. I add no more. God bless you all. Amen. That's powerful stuff. And that's how the speech ends. This phrase has become pretty well known as spoken by Joseph Smith, that no man knows my history. And I love those those incredibly insightful words and and vulnerable words that if I had not experienced what I have, I should not have known it myself. I mean, it's almost like I couldn't have believed this myself if I hadn't been the one that experienced it. But that he had done what he needed to do under the direction of God and was not ever trying to hurt his fellow men, but only to bless which is certainly what his life and ministry did to all again, who had an open heart and mind, and that's a pretty big requirement, right? So after the King Follett sermon, the novel expositor wrote a terrible article, really defaming the prophet and the work of the church. Some of the examples of those uh, words written in the novel expositor included, how shall he who has drunk of the poisonous draft teach virtue. That was speaking about Joseph Smith, you know, thinking that he is full of poison and how is he supposed to teach virtue? We are earnestly seeking to explode the vicious principles of Joseph Smith and those who practice the same abominations and whoredoms. Going on, Joseph Smith is one of the blackest and basest scoundrels that has appeared upon the stage of human existence since the days of Nero and Caligula. Those were horrible Roman emperors who were famous for their depraved actions. And his followers are heaven-daring, hell-deserving, God-forsaken villains. It went on in that manner for a long time. So the Nauvoo City Council met together after that article was printed by the Nauvoo Expositor and declared that paper a public nuisance. And remember, they, they had a charter. Nauvoo had a city charter, so they could make some decisions as a charter. And they decided that this paper was a public nuisance, and they ordered the destruction of the press. Now, this was very different from the way that the Missouri mobs destroyed the press of the Times and Seasons in far west Missouri. They just went in and displaced a family with a sick child and threw things out the windows without any decision having been made that there was a problem with that newspaper. It was just mob violence. Here, it was a very judicious act. Nobody just exploded and went over there and destroyed things. They decided as a city council that this was a public nuisance to the citizens of Nauvoo. And so, you know, based on that, they decided that the press should be destroyed. But this did trigger the arrests of Joseph and Hiram this final time. Now, before they were arrested, Joseph had made assurances to the residents of Nauvoo, to the members of the church. He had said that all they want is Hiram and myself. They will not harm you, not even a hair of your head. So after repeated assurances of that nature, Joseph and Hiram had left for the West and had felt that the spirit was drawing them to the West, which of course is where the saints then fled after Nauvoo was was no longer a place they could stay. But men from Nauvoo, members of the church, came across the river and accused Joseph Smith of cowardice. And that must have been heartbreaking for Joseph Smith, who had done so much for the saints but his answer was, "If my life is of no value to my friends, it is of none to myself." So he returned, and agreed that Hiram and he would turn themselves in at Carthage, and they did. There was a deadline given by Thomas Ford, the governor, and they had to leave early in the morning in order to meet that deadline, which they did. Now, Joseph had had kind of some premonitions of his death. And he had made sure that all the keys were in the Twelve, as directed by God. He made sure that all of the keys, the sealing powers and other keys of the priesthood, resided in the Twelve. They knew the endowment, and after he had revealed the endowment to them as revealed to him, he said, now it doesn't matter what they do to me. So again, he kind of had this idea that his life might not last very long, but that he felt the peace of of having transferred authority to the Twelve. He sent 10 of the Twelve away on missions a little while before going to Carthage. And it's interesting, they were on political missions. They were actually campaigning for Joseph Smith's run for the presidency of the United States. So it was interesting, they were representing him and talking about the principles on which he was running, including, of course, it, it was an anti-slavery campaign. And some commentators in newspapers mentioned that this time around, Joseph Smith probably wouldn't win, but they did mention that the principles were popular with many people and thought that Joseph Smith could become a successful political candidate in the future had he run again. So off they are campaigning. And then just before leaving for Carthage, Joseph sent word to all the 12, to those 10 of the 12, to return to Nauvoo right away. So again, he knew they would be needed in Nauvoo. Of course, Hiram was leaving his wife, Mary Fielding, and Joseph was leaving Emma. And neither of those women, after so many times that their husbands had been arrested and had come home, were very clear on the danger, and they didn't suspect that this would be the final time they would see their husbands. But Joseph returned three times to his front door to take leave of Emma, asking for assurances that she would take care of the children and raise them in the gospel, which, of course, didn't happen. But he came back three times, so he really felt the tenderness and the momentous situation that was taking them to Carthage and to their deaths. He said, I am going like a lamb to the slaughter." but I am as calm as a summer's morning. We read about that in section 135. And again, what an incredible ability to be able to say that I have a conscience void of offense toward God and towards all men. I shall die innocent. That is remarkable. He asked Hiram to go back to Nauvoo several times. Before they got to Carthage, while they were at Carthage, he asked Hiram, go home, and Hiram would not leave him. The governor, Thomas Ford, had guaranteed their safety, but that morning, even with mobs gathering, left Carthage quite early and was not there. The local militia of the state actually cooperated with the mobs, and there was a mingling of those people. They had moved upstairs to the jailer's bedroom and were not behind bars, but there they were in that small room when the mob came thundering up the stairs and collecting outside as well. Joseph Smith punched the first man who came into the room, punched him in the face, and apparently, you know, kind of threw him back down the stairs for a moment. Joseph had been given a gun with six rounds, and he fired all six of them around the doorway to try to get to the people who were trying to come into the room. But only three discharged correctly. There were a couple of injuries in the mob that were coming up the stairs, one later died of his wounds. Now, some people have said, should Joseph Smith have even defended himself? Wasn't he a man of God? Why was he taking life? But he had often said that, you know, they can hurt me, but not my people. In his last address to the Nauvoo Legion, Joseph Smith said that when they took away his own rights, he said he would submit. When they took away the rights of the saints, he would fight for them. And at that point in the speech, he unsheathed his sword and said, I call God and angels to witness what I have said. So some have speculated that, you know, had he been there alone, perhaps he wouldn't have fought back. I don't know. It still would have been okay in my book if he had, but he also had Hiram there. He had Willard Richards and John Taylor who had come with them. So those were two of the 12 and he was defending them as well. There's, of course, Hiram was the first to be killed. A bullet entered the door and struck him in the face on the left side of his nose, and he fell, calling out, I'm a dead man. Joseph leapt to his brother, you know, saying, oh, my dear brother, and then continued trying to keep the door closed. Willard Richards and John Taylor both had walking sticks and were trying to hit down the rifles or muskets that were coming through the door opening. Of course, shots were coming from the window as well. As you have probably heard, John Taylor was struck in the thigh from a bullet from the window, and he fell. He wondered if a nerve had been hit or something, because he said he almost immediately lost use of that leg. So he started to crawl towards the bed so that he could take shelter underneath that bunk. On the way to that bunk, he was hit three more times. Now, when he was hit in the thigh, he started to fall out of the window, and Later, as he was talking to his wife, he was saying, I never understood what had pushed me back from the window, which saved me because had he fallen out into the mob that had gathered outside the jail, he would have certainly been killed. So John Taylor felt something thrusting him back into the room. And that's when he started to crawl under the bunk. He was hit three more times in the hand where the bullet lodged against his left wrist Also in the knee and that bullet flattened against the bone and they were never able to remove it. So he did walk with a limp after that. And another that kind of shot off a piece of his hip that they said was as large as a man's hand. So a considerable loss of flesh in the hip from the third bullet. But he did survive. They took out the one, the bullet from his hand and the bullet from the thigh that had been the first bullet that he took had been removed without anesthetic after the mob had left and he was able to get some medical attention, the one in his knee, as I said, remained. It's kind of an interesting story because John Taylor was actually a very fiery orator. He was also a great writer. And in the West, in the Salt Lake area, years later, when he was... Given the opportunity to preach, sometimes he would talk about the ferocity of the mobs and the evil nature of all these people and how if they came to Salt Lake, they would be fought back and that the saints would never bend to mob violence again. And he would get so excited that occasionally Brigham Young would reach from the back of the pulpit to uh, his coat and pull on his coat and say, you know, John, kind of like calm down. And John Taylor reportedly on occasions would turn kind of back to the prophet Brigham Young and say, "'Leave go my coat. I feel their bullets in me yet.'" And he did have a bullet with him the rest of his life that he had received at Carthage. So he remained a defender of the faith and was often called a champion of liberty. So John Taylor was wounded many times. Willard Richards did not receive any bullet injuries except for a little bit of a graze on one ear, the earlobe. And he was the biggest target in the room. He was over 300 pounds. The prophet had prophesied to Willard Richards, quote, the time would come that the balls would fly around like hail, and he should see his friends fall on the right and on the left, but there should not be a hole in his garment. And that prophecy was fulfilled that day in Carthage. Let me go back to John Taylor for a moment. There's a kind of a legend that grew up, and John Taylor himself felt that this answered his question of why he he didn't fall out the window. That first shot that had hit him in the thigh and kind of disabled his leg also caused him to fall forward toward the window, and then he felt something thrusting him back. Now, later, talking with his wife and looking through his you know what was remaining of his possessions from that day. They found that his pocket watch was cracked; that the glass and the crystal had had shattered, and he thought that a bullet must have hit the watch and thrown him back into the room. And thought that, of course, that was the divine providence of God that was getting him back into the room so that he could survive, even though quite wounded, as opposed to falling out and being killed by the mob. Now, later examination of sort of the forensic evidence would say that the watch was not hit by a bullet, even though that watch, pocket watch of John Taylor's, is in the Church Museum in downtown Salt Lake. So if you get a chance, go see that, or maybe you've seen that. And he believed for the rest of his life that the bullet, had, had, or some bullet had hit the watch and thrown him back into the room and that that was a miracle. And it was a miracle that he was back in the room. But later forensic evidence says that, no, the the whole watch would have been shattered. Um, Hiram's pocket watch was also struck by a bullet, After his death and it was completely destroyed. The current hypothesis then is that John Taylor was falling out of the window and that it was the window ledge that caught the pocket watch or that you know hit the pocket watch as John Taylor was falling out but that basically you know an angel or divine providence did throw him back into the window instead of having him complete the fall and falling outside to the mob. In any event John Taylor's life was preserved The prophet himself, as you have heard, went to the window and some people say that, you know, he was looking for safety. Well, obviously they were thronging the door, so he couldn't find any safety there, but there was no safety outside as well. So people who have considered the evidence and the reports of the eyewitnesses have said that it doesn't make sense that he would have been leaping out of the window looking for any kind of mercy from that mob, that murderous mob. It is suggested that he couldn't have fallen out of the window either because of the size and the position of the window that he would have had to make an effort to, to leave the room through the window. So he had to like lift a leg over the sill and it wouldn't have been an accident. The suggestion then is made that it's not unlikely that Joseph, knowing as he had previously expressed that what the mobs wanted was the death of Joseph and Hiram, went to the window, to leave the room and save the lives of John Taylor and Willard Richards. It's a working hypothesis. And honestly, I think it makes as much sense or more sense than anything else. He wasn't going to find safety outside. He wasn't going to find safety within the room with the mob coming into the the jailer's bedroom there. So once he was dead, you know, falling out of the window, proclaiming, oh, Lord, my God, the mob dissembled and they were left with Willard Richards to bring John Taylor to a safe place and get his wounds treated. And then the news went to Nauvoo, and the saints were devastated. The wife of Heber C. Kimball wrote to her husband, who was away from Nauvoo, every heart is filled with sorrow, and the very streets of Nauvoo seem to mourn. Many wrote poems or hymns or articles about this event and the feelings of the saints, grieving for their prophet and patriarch. William Clayton, who you may remember is the author of the words To Come Come, Ye Saints, and other beautiful writings, saw a broad contrast between the American ideals of religious liberty and the reality the saints were experiencing. Liberty is fled, he wrote. He coolly added that there was, quote, no public celebration in Nauvoo, unquote, on July 4th. Or can you imagine? July 4th comes just a few days after the death of a prophet and Nauvoo did not celebrate Independence Day that year. With his faith in the nation shattered, Clayton turned to God, quote, we look to thee for justice, unquote, he wrote. And there is a lot said in the early days of the westward migration, particularly after coming into the Salt Lake Valley and starting to settle here. It's a lot written about how the Constitution had failed, In the United States, because certainly the actions of Thomas Ford, the governor, of course, all the people in Missouri who had fought the saints there and persecuted them, as well as then the Illinois mobs. And there were many Missourians who had joined the Illinois mobs, by the way. So there were people from Missouri in the mob that killed Hiram and Joseph. But these, these places had not enforced constitutional protections and had not followed the law. So there was a disillusionment with the government and, and the way that the country had responded and the leaders of the country who had not done anything to protect the saints. So W.W. W. Phelps wrote that beautiful hymn, Praise to the Man, which makes me emotional every time we sing it. John Taylor wrote two hymns, the words of two hymns. One was called, Oh, Give Me Back My Prophet, Dear, a really tender tribute to the prophet. He also wrote, a song called The Seer, Joseph the Seer. And I remember that from my youth. It was sung occasionally in my ward in Indianapolis when I was young. So I looked it up and there's a beautiful version of it done by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir on YouTube. So if you want to look that one up, it's another beautiful tribute to Joseph Smith written by John Taylor. Eliza R. Snow wrote beautiful words following the loss of Joseph and Hiram. Many people thought that the church would end, and it was widely expected in, you know, America that that would happen. And some things were even published in newspapers saying that, you know, Mormondom is over with, with the loss of their prophet, uh, saying that there will never be another Joe Smith. So there, it's kind of an ironic tribute there. But I was reminded of what happened in the New Testament. Remember Paul speaking before Festus and Agrippa? Governors of Judea, there with Roman authority. And Paul tells them in Acts 26 26, this thing was not done in a corner. I think that's a great statement. I mean, bless Paul for his language here. This thing was not done in a corner. Speaking of Jesus Christ and the ministry of Christ and the atonement of Christ, like this was not done in a secret place or just for a tiny group of people, it was done for the world. And actually, earlier, in the book of Acts was another interesting statement made by Jewish leaders who were asked to authorize the persecution of the early Christians. Now, we do know that they were persecuted eventually, but at that time, the response was in Acts 5, verse 30, if this council or this work be of men, meaning speaking of the Christian movement, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. So that, I have an echo in my head when I consider this time of the church's history with the death and martyrdom of Joseph and Hiram. This thing was not done in a corner. Or if this were done of man, it would, it would have disappeared. But it was of God, and it could not be overthrown. And those who try to fight against it and do fight against it now find themselves fighting against God himself because it is his work and it is his kingdom. The last two years of the prophet's life, church leaders had been working on a new edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, and they had announced publication for mid-July of 1844. They ended up publishing it and getting it in use in September, so it was delayed by a couple of months, and Section 135 was written by John Taylor in August of that year and included. Because the printers had to fit this statement into an already typeset, though not yet printed volume— The section was printed in significantly smaller font than the rest of the volume. Kind of an interesting little detail here that this beautiful tribute to the prophet had to be put in small font to fit in the page and a half of blank paper that was left between the previous section, 134, and the index to the Doctrine and Covenants. So that edition was kind of perfectly timed with a little bit of a delay in a smaller font. They were able to include this accounting of the martyrdom of Joseph Smith and Hiram and to give this prophetic tribute to this amazing man. Now we should talk a little bit about the succession and leadership. Months before again to the 12 after after sharing the endowment, Joseph had told those brethren and many of them recounted this in their memories or speeches or in their journals, I roll the burden and responsibility of leading this church off from my shoulders onto yours. Again, you know Joseph saw this coming. He didn't know exactly what was going to happen to him or when, but it seems clear that Joseph had received you know, lots of promptings that he would not live long and he needed to share the keys with the 12. So many had expected actually that Hiram might succeed Joseph Smith if the need would arise because they didn't think they would go together necessarily. Hiram was an older brother, but Joseph's life was so often in jeopardy. But Hiram, of course, having been killed with Joseph, some saints now looked to the biblical precedent of the 12 apostles leading the church after Christ had been crucified, and they awaited the apostles' return. One church member living near Nauvoo said he heard people advocating for several potential leaders, including Brigham Young, Parley Pratt, Sidney Rigdon, there was a stake president, William Marks, who was mentioned, and 11-year-old Joseph Smith III, the oldest son of the prophet the surviving son of the prophet, or even Stephen Markham, who was a stalwart member of the church who had been wounded by the mob while trying to reach Joseph in Carthage Jail. Now, Brigham Young returned to Nauvoo on August 6th, so it had been a few weeks since June 27th to August 6th. When he had first heard about Joseph and Hiram Smith's deaths, Brigham Young later recalled, his head had felt as though it would crack the disorientation of the loss receded only when the distinct thought came to him that though the prophet and the patriarch had died, the keys of the kingdom remained with the apostles. In Nauvoo, he met with the assembled apostles to counsel together and seek the will of the Lord on how the church should be led from this point. He wanted to take some time over this, but two days after Brigham Young's arrival back to Nauvoo, Sidney Rigdon called a meeting, and he suggested that he be the guardian of the church. And he wanted the saints to vote on this. He said, nobody's going to replace the prophet, but I can lead you as the guardian of the church. And it's essential that we make this decision now so we don't fly apart, etc. Brigham Young wrote, I feel to want to weep for 30 days and then rise up and tell the people what the Lord wants with them. And this was something that he recounted in the afternoon meeting, because he felt that with Sidney Rigdon making this pitch, he needed to have a quicker response than what he had hoped. So that afternoon, he called a meeting of the saints as well. So Sidney met with them in the morning and Brigham Young in the afternoon. But given the pressure to make this decision, he organized the saints as a solemn assembly and asked them to sustain the 12 apostles to lead the church. Quote, it was evident to the saints that the mantle of Joseph had fallen upon him, Wilfred Woodruff wrote in his report of events to the saints in Britain. Howard Egan told Jesse Little that during his address, Young had sounded strikingly like Joseph Smith. Quote, if a man had been blinded, he noted, he would hardly have known if it were not Joseph. Now, we've probably heard stories like this before, right? There were many people who actually recorded in journals or later in letters to their family or whatever that Brigham Young had seemed transfigured into the image of Joseph Smith. Dozens of people had written about more elaborate accounts describing this miraculous transformation. Some people even commented that, you know, some people think, well, it was just emotional, but they said, no, Brigham Young was not much over five feet tall, the prophet Joseph was over six feet tall. And when Brigham Young spoke, you know, he appeared to be the size of Joseph Smith and sounded like him, even to a slight lisp that he had ever since a tooth had been broken in one of the mob attacks. So there were many witnesses to this kind of affirmation from the heavens that Brigham Young was to carry the mantle of leadership in the church as the president of the Quorum of the Twelve, so during the next three years, Sidney Rigdon, James Strang, and other people formed their own movements, each drawing away some of the church members, but most of the saints followed the Twelve, helped to complete the temple, received temple blessings, and then took part in the migration west to what is now Utah. The core of the Twelve as a group led the church under the direction of Brigham Young until 1847, so three years later. When Young finally called counselors and reconstituted the first presidency. So the leadership of the church went on, but the first presidency was not reconstituted until three years after the martyrdom, which is kind of interesting. And then, following that, after President Young died, John Taylor, and then after John Taylor died, Wilfred Woodruff, each waited about three years after the death of the preceding prophet before reorganizing the first presidency. And that's something I hadn't known. I knew the part about them waiting three years to sustain Brigham Young as the president of the church. But I didn't realize that that same pattern of waiting three years had happened after John Taylor's death and after Wilford Woodruff's death. However, before Wilford Woodruff died, he urged the Twelve not to delay in sustaining a new First Presidency when he was gone. So Lorenzo Snow, who was then the president of the Twelve, organized the First Presidency almost immediately, as has happened after each succeeding prophet and we have seen that in our day, that the first presidency is reconstituted, a new prophet is sustained very shortly after the current prophet has has died, or the preceding prophet has died. And this is the pattern that we continue today. So, um, a little practical application here, if if I can. You know, it Joseph Smith is such an amazing character. B.H. Roberts said of Joseph Smith that he lived his life in crescendo. And maybe you know that musical term, which means, you know, to increase the volume, you know, that that as the music, you know, builds and gets louder, that's a crescendo. Well, Joseph Smith, according to B.H. Roberts, lived his life in crescendo. And I think that's a beautiful description. It grew, it magnified, he became more and more and more. In the King Follett Sermon, he actually talked about, you know, different versions of the Bible that he'd been studying and talked about how the German translation of the Bible currently was the most correct. And I was just kind of blown away by that little detail. I'm like, when did he have a chance to learn German? (laughs) Or or at least to read it with a spirit of prophecy and seership and be able to interpret it and know that it was more correct than other versions of the Bible. So, I mean, this man just grew. I mean, you know that there was a Hebrew study that they did. They had a noted Hebrew scholar come and teach the school of the prophets Hebrew, and that teacher later remarked that, you know, the brethren were all pretty bright and learned quickly, but by far the quickest learner was Joseph Smith, again, a man with a third-grade education. So it's it's remarkable how he expanded his vision. He saw the heavens. He communed with prophets, old and, and ancient and And had keys delivered to him by them personally. He was not of this world in so many ways as he grew. Certainly still loving the saints, trying to teach and lead them and prepare them for what was to come. But, you know, what an amazing life. And think of how many people over the years have said things like, you know, I like your church. I like the principles of the youth programs, the way you live, whatever the standards. But I just can't get my head around this Joseph Smith story. You're kind of amazed. And as many of us, you know, have responded or have heard it responded that, you know, you kind of have to be all in or or be out. Because if Joseph Smith was not a prophet, then the Book of Mormon is a fake. And, you know, all the things restored in this Latter-day Dispensation is, is false. You can't have it both ways. Either he's a prophet or he's a fraud. And everything that came from him is rooted in that, in that fakery and that uh, deception. So it's interesting that people try to have their cake and eat it too. You know, I like this, this church that has been built, but I don't like the founder. And of course, the Book of Mormon's authenticity is tied in directly with Joseph Smith as well. So it's such a pivotal part of our testimonies. If we really want to come to Christ, we know that in this dispensation, we also have to come through Joseph Smith to come to Christ and to be accepted, and that he will be one of the judges of this dispensation. So what is our testimony of Joseph Smith? I hope it's grown this year. I hope we've developed a deep love for this man, and for many of these amazing men who sacrificed so much, and women, and the children along with them who did remarkable work under such overwhelming odds that only the power of heaven could have preserved them and brought them Finally, to the Salt Lake Valley and to where we are today as a worldwide church. It's, you know, again, can you have the fruit without the roots? You can't. Can a fountain bring forth both salt water and, and fresh? No. It's, it's either bitter or it's sweet. But you can't have both. Now, so many people lose their testimonies. These days, we see people dropping like flies And it seems that so many of them become what we used to call anti-Mormon or enemies to the church and very aggressive about their attacks. I don't know if there's that much new in their attacks. I remember when Chris and I were young in our marriage and just had one or two kids, we were in the same ward as Hugh Nibley. It was close to BYU, one of those wards that they used to call the newlywed and the nearly dead, because there were a lot of young students that usually married students in that particular ward, as well as older people whose children were grown. Anyway, he was there with his wife, Phyllis. And on one occasion, on testimony meeting, he he stood up and said that he had been reading some of the attacks on Joseph Smith that were current at that time. This was, of course, a few decades ago. And he said, you know, they can't come up with anything new. And it all falls apart when it's closely examined. He said, whatever attacks they started with back in the day of Joseph and Hiram, you know, continues now and will continue until the Savior comes and puts all these things to rest. Because this is kind of an article of faith of the church. Was Joseph a prophet? Was he who he said he was or not? And all kind of hinges on that belief. So Joseph Smith had a really, I think, insightful thing to say about people who turn against the church. So quoting the prophet, before you joined this church, you stood on neutral ground. When the gospel was preached, good and evil were set before you. You could choose either or neither. There were two opposite masters inviting you to serve them. When you joined this church, you enlisted to serve God. When you did that, you left the neutral ground and you can never get back onto it. Should you forsake the master you enlisted to serve, it will be by the instigation of the evil one, and you will follow his dictation and be his servant. Isn't that brilliant? And it makes perfect sense. So he's saying that, you know, before we know the choice between the truth of the gospel and, you know, the error of the rest of the world, we're on neutral ground. We don't have to make a choice. We haven't been introduced to this greater truth, this greater light, But once we have, and particularly if we then enlist to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, then we are no longer on neutral ground. And we can't go back to being neutral. We can't go back to not knowing the light of the gospel. And if we ever forsake the Lord or his gospel, then it will be because of the instigation of the evil one. So the only reason we would leave the light is in favor of the darkness. And that means that Satan has got a hold of us and is pulling us away from the light. And we're not going to go back to being neutral. Now we're in the grip of the devil, the enemy to all righteousness and the enemy of mankind who wants all men to be miserable like him to himself. So it makes really good sense to me. And I love the prophet's insight here. Once we're in, we can't go back to neutral ground. Another reason explains why so many people who leave the church can't leave it alone, as has been said so often. Sadly, over the years, I've talked to a lot of people who have left the church. Many of them I felt like didn't have a good understanding of some of the doctrine. And they're leaving or losing their testimonies with sort of ignorance. And they would say things like, well, I just don't believe in this or whatever. And I'd say, yeah, well, that's not the gospel. <laughs> I mean, I was very polite about it and diplomatic, but I would try to point out that like, no, that that's, that is a problem. And that's not what the church teaches. You know, here, if you're interested, let's look it up. But there are many others, of course, who leave that there seems to be a pattern with. They don't want to follow the commandments anymore. How many times have we perhaps known of somebody who leaves the church, and then we find out later they have an addiction that they really wanted to pursue, and they felt guilty because the church preaches against things that can enslave us through our natural man and our appetites. And so, you know, if they get tired of the struggle, and they're like, well, I just don't want to... I don't want to feel bad about having this addiction and indulging it, then they want to just, you know, throw out the baby with the bathwater. You know, there it goes. As a friend of mine used to say, hey, you might want to check that water just to see if there's a baby in there. And that's what they're doing. They're giving up everything because they're struggling with their natural man appetites. And and, And how sad is that, that they end up choosing to pursue their natural man? And let their appetites have free reign, which is not freedom. You know, they think, oh, I'm free. And no, they're actually now even more enslaved. You think Satan's going to let them alone till they're destroyed? No. And just being enslaved to your appetites is a terrible thing. And you know what's really sad these days with the internet and whatever and all kinds of social media. We see people who kind of gloat or maybe it's friends or family members of ours who, who try to say, Oh, I'm so much happier now that I don't have to keep the Sabbath day holy or be sober and clean and, you know, and fight my addictions or whatever it is that they're struggling with. Now I can drink. Now I can mess around in whatever way as if there is lasting happiness in any of those things. Again, the difference between pleasure and happiness is miles apart. Miles apart, yes, you know, indulging the appetites can bring momentary pleasure, but then you need that hit again and again and again until ultimately it enslaves you because you're so dependent on that little thrill or stimulation or whatever, and you're not free, so we leave the freedom of of the spirit and of developing our finer self for true enslavement in marriages of course it's tragic if if one partner decides they no longer believe that does real damage to the marriage, and struggles really ensue. Many of those marriages don't end up lasting. And I'm not saying that divorce is the first solution or that it's inevitable. I'm just saying that it's pretty difficult because so often that pattern continues. You know, I don't want to go to church anymore. So now the other spouse is going to church with the kids alone. And sometimes it's worse if the person continues to come to church. I don't know if it's worse, but I've heard spouses say, now every time I'm sitting in a meeting, sacrament meeting or Sunday school or whatever, with my spouse there that I know doesn't believe, I become really sensitized to all the things that I know they're thinking when they hear the lesson taught or the speech given. So I can hardly enjoy it because, you know, I just know of the criticisms that are going through my partner's head. So it's a difficult situation. They, you know, then so often it's like, well, I don't want to pay tithing anymore. And what's wrong with drinking some alcohol or doing a little pot or, you know, porn is okay. And I can watch whatever, you know, foul movies or media there is now because I don't believe anymore. So, I mean, how convenient is that? And I say that in quotes because it's a, again, it's an enslavement. You know, I think I'm going to be free now. And people for a moment can, can you know, sense that rush of pleasure that they don't have to try to harness their appetites anymore. And what they give up in return is the chance to be that better version of themselves. Now they descend into just the carnal, sensual, and devilish. And if it doesn't happen right away, it happens. We see that descent. It's It's tragic. And then I, you know, I ask sometimes when I'm counseling with a couple going through this, and I'm very respectful about this. I'm not trying to offend anybody. People do have a choice. We do believe in the principle of agency. So I'm not going to tell anybody that, you know, well, you can't make this choice or, you know, this is, you're a terrible person for doing this. I mean, I'm a counselor, I'm not their bishop anyway, but I, I'm telling them, you know, so I do bring this up. I say, can I just ask, is this going to make you a better husband or wife and a better mother or father? So I'm like, that would be really sad, is if in your leaving behind the principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you become a less loving husband or wife or a less invested mother or father, or or you don't look out for the best interests of your family. And if you're not going to follow these principles, well, which principles are you going to live by? Are there any set of principles that are going to guide your behavior? You know, any kind of moral framework? Or is it now just anything goes? Again, I'm really respectful the way I say that. I'm not maybe quite as blunt, but I definitely get the message across. Because, again, the sad truth is that not living these high standards typically then creates this lessening of of quality of life and the lessening of integrity or the lessening of of our efforts to build love and safety in our relationships. It is an incredibly difficult challenge. And then we also see, of course, the cost to the children because... Again, something I hear a lot from spouses in the situation where their partner has left the church or lost their testimony, that they start to influence the children and say, you know, well, come with me on Sunday. We're going to go party. Uh, you don't have to go to church. And And that can be devastating for the faithful partner who wants their children brought up in light and truth. And then to see that the other parent is pulling them away. I mean, you don't want to just condemn the other parent, but You want to stand fast to your principles, and I do think that in a case like that, you just communicate with your kids. Witness to your children what you believe. You don't have to denigrate a spouse, but you can definitely say, I believe that this is true. I have had spiritual confirmation of these things. I have seen them in action. Anyway, we can give examples to our children of why these principles still will bless their lives. And then remember that if they are lured away, and they can be lured away by the seemingly greater freedom of having no rules or no standards that are enforced, or no expectations morally in, in some of these ways, or, or maybe by the money of this spouse or, or whatever the other one is, is offering, I just counsel you to not give up hope in Christ. Christ has made incredible promises, to the children of Israel and to the children of the covenant. Many of these children have been born in the covenant or later sealed in the temple and even if they aren't, they are God's children and he loves them even more than we do. Don't forget that. It may be a long time coming before those promises are fulfilled. Maybe it will be on the other side. And I'm not saying God is going to abrogate or take away the agency of our children. I am saying that the covenants that are in place have power. And if we keep our covenants, God can bless our posterity through the keeping of our own covenants. Again, beautiful words at the Temple Veil that, that can bless our posterity through our own covenant keeping. How wonderful is that? It is difficult, again, in another way, I just want to mention that Emotional intimacy is kind of the pinnacle of of successful marriage, having this spiritual and emotional connection with our spouses where we really are both reaching for God. And, you know, even in lots of secular studies, it talks about emotional intimacy as being this this capstone good in a marriage. So when we lose that because a partner starts to believe very differently from how we believe, it is going to affect the, the closeness that we feel to a spouse. That doesn't mean we can't love them. If they're challenging the teaching that we're doing to our children, that gets pretty hard. As long as there are no safety issues, you know, we can still try to make it work. There may be a point at which we have to consider alternatives, but that's a very personal decision that I hope is made with inspiration and through communion with the Spirit. Respect is really important during these times. We don't have to agree. We should all respect, and that's something we can ask for. We may or may not get it. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. He has made promises and he keeps his promises. I just want to end this section by quoting Truman Madsen, who I think says something so beautiful here. He wrote, no man can come to a testimony of the prophetic mantle of the prophet Joseph Smith without knowing that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And no man can have a testimony that Christ is the divine Savior and Lord without knowing when he hears Joseph's name and knows even a little of his life that Christ had a prophet named Joseph Smith. What a beautiful conclusion. If we have a testimony of Joseph Smith, we know that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, our Savior and Redeemer. And nobody can have a testimony of Christ without knowing when we hear of Joseph Smith or a little bit about his life and his work, that he was a prophet of Jesus Christ, a prophet of God's praise to the man who communed with Jehovah. Jesus anointed that prophet and seer, blessed to open the last dispensation. Kings shall extol him and nations revere. Hail to the prophet ascended to heaven. Traitors and tyrants now fight him in vain. Mingling with gods, he can plan for his brethren. Death cannot conquer the hero again. I'm grateful for those wonderful words. I'm grateful for the love of the prophet shown by these early saints and recorded and witnessed by them. I love Joseph Smith. I am endlessly grateful for his amazing ministry, the work he did that makes possible my life the way I want to live it with access to all the blessings of heaven that were restored by this amazing prophet who gave his life to seal his witness with his own blood, along with his beloved and amazing brother Hiram. Let us be grateful. December 27th is the prophet's birthday. It's a wonderful thing to celebrate right after Christmas. I hope we remember him throughout our lives. As long as we believe in Jesus Christ, we will have a firm testimony of his prophet, Joseph Smith. Thank you to my husband, Chris Anderson, for all his support with the podcast. And thank you to Doug Varson of Point Digital. Let's build Zion. Take care.